Welcome to the Clear Points Podcast, where we discuss optimizing customer experience by focusing on engagement points along the customer journey. Clear Points is a production of ClearPoint Health, a North Carolina consulting firm that helps healthcare providers and life sciences companies get to know their patients, customers, and key stakeholders and meet their needs more effectively. Clear Points airs on the ParkLife Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. I'm Brian Castle, and I'm happy to have my colleague of 11 years, Kristen Smithwick, one of the company's co-founders. Say hi, Kristen. Hi, everybody. And when we say everybody, it's a few dozen people at this moment. But thank you all. Due to the time-space continuum of podcasts, somebody could be discovering this five years from now when we have millions of listeners. And we welcome those of you from the future, but just know we have a little bit deeper appreciation for those who got in early. <laughs> Kristen's here today to talk to us about value-based medicine, a topic she wrote about recently on the uh, ClearPoint uh, Health Insights blog. After we talk about that, our uh, colleague from episode one, Mark Schumann, is back to talk about one of the uh, critical issues facing folks in medical affairs worldwide, and that's uh, the exchange of scientific content um, something they've been doing for years, but has become a greater challenge uh, due to the COVID pandemic. So, Kristen, have you laced up your cleats and ready to go on this value-based medicine topic? I'm ready. Pass the ball. I think it's good to get a baseline definition. So could you share with our listeners uh, what you mean when you're talking about value-based medicine? Absolutely. Value-based medicine or value-based health care or value-based care, you might hear that, that phrase said in a number of different ways. It's really the notion of, of health care being based on an exchange of value between uh, a provider of that health care service and the recipient, the patient. So, you know, the notion here is that key stakeholders like physicians and hospitals and, and practices and clinics are paid on the health of their patients, also known as the outcomes, versus um, being paid on specific health services. So instead of um, someone getting paid for ordering an MRI and um, doing a blood panel and having a consultation with me, they actually get paid on whether I have a positive outcome in my health whatever my health situation might be. If I have a chronic illness, am I showing indications that that chronic illness is being managed in a way that provides me with a healthy lifestyle? If I have an acute illness, how quickly do I get over it? Um, those, those kinds of uh, outcomes to the healthcare experience. So the notion of tying any service, uh, including the provision of healthcare, it seems like it should be uh, closely tied to value. I know with our company, uh, when we do projects, do research, insights projects, they expect value. 
Absolutely. Why, why is this so new? Like so many things we're seeing in healthcare over the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. Why is the concept of value so new to healthcare? Well, healthcare is it's a very complex uh, thing. It, you know, there's there's so many different layers of people and systems that go into the delivery of healthcare that, you know, finding value is kind of a difficult thing to do sometimes. Value for one particular layer of the healthcare system could be different from value of another layer. So some of the models we've had in the past, most most recently the fee-for-service model, which is really about, you know, um, paying for the healthcare services, like I said a minute ago, those models were put in place to try to make sure that everybody's concept of value at each different layer were getting satisfied. So if I'm a physician, my time it, it's worth something. And so a fee-for-service model made sure I was paid for my time. And, and likewise, if I'm a company that's created a, a wonderful machine like an MRI machine, well, I want to make sure that that company receives value for having brought that wonderful technology for, for healthcare to use. So, you know, there was an incentive, a financial incentive to try to use the MRI machine that a healthcare system would purchase. And so the more you ordered an MRI test, the more the clinic or the practice or the healthcare system was paid to use it. And so there was there was value for different players at different layers of that system. So I think the reason this has taken so long to kind of come to bear is that there's just an, uh, an innate complexity. However, uh, I think what societies at large can all agree to is that as a society, we all benefit if we have healthier people who are more productive citizens. And so if you kind of take, take it from that very high societal place and you start filtering that down, I think everybody can kind of agree that if if we can improve the ultimate value of healthcare, which is to make healthy people, then that that should be a beacon everybody can get behind. So conceptually, I think that time has come for a lot of reasons that come from a lot of different places. But um, the other thing that's really driving us to all uh, agree that the value of health outcomes should be the beacon of light that healthcare is then based on <laughs> is that the costs are out of control. I mean, in a market like the United States, for example, you've got so many wonderful companies and, and people who are creating new innovations in healthcare every day. But to create them, they've got to have money to keep that creation kind of pipeline going. And so everybody in the chain then has to pay for that innovation. And over time, the, the innovation factor coupled with, you know, every time you have a process that gets added to over time, you get a pretty fat series of processes that have a lot of things that that we used to pay for because that was the way you did it. And they never actually get a close look to decide at some point, Hey, that's really fat. We could trim, but now the costs are just so great that there's a, there's, there's a review at every level from the government down that says, I don't want to pay these costs anymore. So, you know, I think for some really great reasons around wanting a healthy population, 
and for reasons of necessity because of out-of-control costs, you're seeing the time for value-based care is finally upon us. Those are some of the the causes or, or the impetus for what's going on now. We all operate in ways that benefit us, right? So, yeah, you know, and and at least here in the U.S., there's this pretty huge and varied ecosystem of stakeholders. Walk us through the what's in it for me for each stakeholder group, starting with patients. Sure. Well, so I think I mean there there are lots of companies out there that write about value based care, and I think depending on what your particular perspective is, you might have a lot of different uh, audiences than the ones we might talk about today. But uh, certainly patients would be the number one audience that I think everybody could agree on here. And the biggest benefit in value-based care for patients is that they actually get to feel like they're working with not just a physician, but an entire healthcare system that cares about their health. So, you know, they get more time for evaluating and and feeling like they've, you know, had a chance to really diagnose whatever their issues are. They get a time that they feel like, you know, the the physician especially is devoting to helping them manage whatever their healthcare issues are. And ultimately, you know, they, they kind of, the what's in it for them is they feel like the people they go to when they don't feel well actually care. (laughs) And hey, on top of that, because the providers and the institutions that employ the providers are also caring about their health, the the other outcome is that they get to have better health. I mean, arguably, this should produce better health for more people. And then finally, they potentially get to lower their cost of care because they wouldn't necessarily be in a system that's ordering tests they don't need or ordering up prescription medicines that that maybe they won't need because they're healthier overall. So ultimately they'll have more coming out of their pocket, less coming out of their pocketbook, which is also a good thing. So how about let's, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Let's talk about healthcare providers and institutions. Sure. Um, What, what do they have to benefit from value-based? Oh, I don't certainly pretend to know all of the, medical physicians or nurses or any of the health professionals out there, but I I know enough in my personal circle that anecdotally I can tell you most people go into medicine because they really want to help patients. They have an interest in the clinical care, and even if they're going into medicine because they just have a passion for the science, they ultimately, if they're going to work directly with patients, they also have a passion for helping people. And so I think one of the greatest benefits of value-based care is that those, those providers get to return to focusing on clinical care and helping patients. And they feel less like order takers who are supposed to process a certain number of people in a short amount of time every day. I think that they'll really feel like they're starting to move the needle and, and what they ultimately you know, promise to do when they take their oath as physicians, which is to put the health of their patients first. And if they can see that they're they're actually affecting positive change in the health of patients, I think that will make them feel like they've they've given back and their promise and their oath. And I think they'll enjoy that more collaborative feel overall. I think there's a, um, I, I think a lot of physicians would prefer 
to certainly feel like their patients rely on their expertise. But I think a lot of physicians and nurses and other healthcare pra uh, practitioners, they want to feel like they have a collaborative relationship that um, shows engagement on the patient's part and on the physician's part. So I think all of those are benefits for the providers. Well, I know from reading your piece and looking at other material out there, it's kind of obvious, you know, looking at it from the, let's call them the more technical cost-oriented players in the system, mm -hmm. uh, payers and pharmacy benefit managers, I think they may benefit from, let's just call it the greater precision of the delivery of care, mm -hmm. greater level of collaboration uh, among providers and their patients. They're all about that efficiency. Right. Tell us about our favorite group of people, uh, industry, pharma, biotech, medical device, diagnostic space. What's in it for those guys? You know, you asked me a minute ago about providers and institutions, and I really didn't speak a whole lot about institutions. I'm going to take a minute to speak about those because I think they connect to those, those industry players that you just mentioned. But, you know, institutions are in business. Some of them are for-profit. Some are technically not for-profit, but they're in business to ensure the well-being of a community. And as such, they, you know, some of them have a mandate to make money doing that. Those that don't technically have that mandate have a have a calling to make enough money to keep investing in, in the well-being of their communities. And so I think, you know, those institutions tend to be big buyers of the products that biopharmaceutical companies, diagnostics companies, and device companies put out. So, you know, institutions have a vested interest in, in anything that can ensure that they can show they are helping their communities be healthier. And so if, our, if, if biopharmaceutical device and diagnostics companies are able to sh demonstrate to those institutions and to the providers themselves that they're playing in that same field, then they're going to do better in their own business. They're going to have more institutions and more providers that want to do business with them. I do think, you know, we would be remiss and not acknowledging that those industry uh, players potentially in the short term have some financial losses that could be possible. You know, they certainly benefit from institutions and providers prescribing more medicines, prescribing more tests, because that money flows through to pay for the things they're producing. But over time, I think that the economics will actually even out. And so they've got to be able to demonstrate early that they too care about the health of the patients at the end of the line here. ClearPoints is brought to you by ClearPoint Health on the ParkLife Podcast Network. CPH is the global leader in developing original research methods and tools to help pharmaceutical, biotechnology, and medical device companies optimize their relationships with critical advisors like disease state key opinion leaders. 
Learn more about our MSL assessments and medical affairs effectiveness tools by visiting www.clearpointhealth.com. So without further ado, let's bring our friend Mark Schumann in from the virtual green room into the virtual studio. Good afternoon, Mark. Good afternoon, Brian. Hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me today. Hi, Mark. Kristen, I'm excited to have Mark on here. I know you are too. The three of us were having a little conversation the other day trying to figure out different ways we could benefit our clients with some of our uh, research and analysis capabilities. Um, And we were talking about the digital space. That was why we got all together. And then Mark, as he is wont to do, shared some pretty edgy work he's doing, which is focused on the message, not the medium. So Mark, talk to us about the importance of this content and why you're advocating for a content first approach uh, and then looking at various media. Thank you, Brian. So I think the the first point that I'd like to make is um, we're in the middle of a pandemic and Let's talk a little bit about channels first, if I may, and then we'll get into content. So at this point, um, when this podcast is recorded, as we are sitting here now, um, both MSLs and commercial sales reps are not able to engage anyone face-to-face, for the most part in most countries. And... This has been a significant change, as we all know, that, you know, bread and butter for most farmer reps, let's talk about the commercial reps, has certainly been face-to-face engagement. I mean, we only have to think about the delivery uh, of the lunch. Um, And I don't say that idly, that, you know, many physicians have come to expect lunch to be delivered and information to be shared. And, you know... To a degree, that applies to the medical professionals and MSLs as, as well. There's, there, there's been this expectation of this face-to-face relationship and building it out over time. So one of the key considerations we have now is we've seen this transition, this fundamental transition in the period of only a few months where we've switched to virtual or digital engagement. Um, whether that be phone, email, or in most cases, sort of whether we call that video conferencing. I think that's a good term for it. Whether you use Zoom, Viva Connect, Blue Jeans, there's there's a ton of different platforms that pharma companies are using at the moment. So if we think about the channel, as we preface this conversation about talking about content, which really is independent of the channel, the other question that we need to consider as, as we have this discussion is, are we going to stay with this virtual channel or is there going to be a time in the future, in a year or two, whether we actually can go back to face-to-face? Um, because I do think the channel does have some impact. And I think this is the biggest question that many companies should be asking right now is as we start to think about content delivery, the delivery of scientific education. Number one, what is the channel going to be and what channels are going to be optimal? 
And at this point, we don't know. I don't think, I think many companies are making the assumption that we're going to move back to a face-to-face type model. Um, But is that going to be the same? Prior to COVID, we certainly knew that the the blend, certainly in in the USA, in in medical MSLs, is a blend of 80-20, 80% face-to-face, 20% virtual. We know that's absolutely flip-flopped at this point, almost 100% virtual um, at at this point. Very rare with face-to-face engagement, maybe under specific uh, CDC uh, approved conditions where it is absolutely critical, but for the most part not happening. So the question is, are we, number one, going to be moving towards a model, uh, a channel that is going to be a blend of virtual of 50-50? And many people are saying no. Many of the leading consulting companies in the U.S. are advising their clients that a virtual, it's going to be 80% virtual and maybe 20% face-to-face. So considering that, let's talk a little bit about content. So irrespective of what channel we go back to, whether we go back to a virtual channel and keep our engagement um, virtual using teleconferences, or whether we do switch back to -to face-to-face, let's talk about some key variables that I think are critical irrespective of channel. One of the things I love about your work and seeing some of the, the results and more importantly, the direction you're able to give companies, Mark, um, is you unearthed something that a lot of people might think should go unsaid, but if you ignore it, it's very much at your peril. And that's the concept of authenticity. And you've been coaching companies now for a few years that if they're going to make that climb up that aspirational continuum from vendor being seen as a vendor, even though MSLs don't sell anything, but if they're going to be seen as a vendor or company rep versus a trusted scientific advisor, which they all aspire to do that, then there's a focus on authenticity. That's very foundational to some of your new focus areas where you're doing a lot of testing, modeling, and tracking around a couple of critical aspects of content. And I'd love it if you'd discuss those. Yeah, with absolute pleasure. So we have done a lot of research. Over the last decade, we have um, one of our core lines of business is engaging key opinion leaders on behalf of pharmaceutical companies Um, We use online survey instruments. We use interviews. Again, for the most part, uh, the information that we collect is aggregated and blinded. But here are some key lessons learned uh, that we have seen across the work that we've done um, that really are applicable to no matter what channel you are using. If you want to deliver an authentic experience. And that's what we advise our clients to aim for. An authentic experience in terms of you being, particularly medical and MSLs now, particularly being a trusted scientific advisor, 
it has to be composed. That experience that you deliver has to be composed of five key elements. And again, let me just give you a little bit about the methodology. So I mentioned in the last decade, we've done a lot of this work. We pulled together all of the feedback we've collected from key opinion leaders, both in the United States, Europe, uh, and across the globe. And we looked at what were the key drivers of that experience. And remember, it's the KOL's experience. It's not the MSL's experience or the sales rep's experience. It's how the KOL perceives interacting with these representatives from primarily pharmaceutical companies. So here are the five key themes that emerge. And these really should drive your content, irrespective, as I said, of the channel that you are using in terms of engaging those key customers. So number one, responsiveness. Are you responsive to your customer? Um, in a nutshell, that means, are you going to do what you say you're going to do? If we look at this in terms of a pie graph and we break down these key thematic uh, elements that emerge together, that's approximately we would attribute about 10% to that. So are you being responsive? And if we look at the value, maybe that's 10% of building this construct of authenticity. The next one is, do you understand expertise? And do you not understand, do you understand my business? And what this means is for an MSL is, do you understand the science? the research behind it, but also do you understand the clinical practice? And if we want to put that into a bucket, we can attribute uh, a value of about 20% to expertise. So that understanding, that ability to demonstrate that I not only understand the science, but also your clinical practice and your research as a key opinion leader. Moving on, relevance. Is the information that you are sharing with me, is it relevant to my clinical practice, to my research? Uh, and this is really an important one. Um, I know that a lot of sales reps and MSLs do a lot of preparation in terms of getting ready to engage these very important key opinion leaders. And part of that preparation should be to really have an understanding of what their focus is, what their clinical expertise is, and being able to take a large amount of information and distill it into the key points that is relevant for that particular individual that you're engage, engaging to. Now, this brings up a really interesting question. So as an MSL, how much time should I be using to prepare? Because we recognize that preparation is critical to being able to deliver relevant information. If I can't prepare, I'm not going to understand who my customer is. I'm not going to understand what their needs are, and I'm not going to be able to understand, uh, deliver that, that critical information. So just as an aside, Brian, what do you think? How much time should an MSL spend preparing, and how much time should they spend engaging their key opinion leaders? If I, if I had to guess, I mean, I have lots of meetings that I have to prepare for mm -hmm. and we all have ways of prioritizing the importance of our meetings. And these are the very most important meetings to, the, to our 
MSLs we work with. I would guess there's probably a one-to-one ratio if you're going to have, or even two-to-one, if you're going to have a 30-minute meeting, which I think is probably average, probably going to spend at least an hour preparing. So, so let's look at what pharmaceutical companies generally assign in terms of preparation time and what their expectations are for their MSLs. Um, let's speak to that point. So again, we've done a lot of research in this area and generally pharmaceutical companies expect 80% to be engaged with your key customer, your key KOLs and 20% for preparation and research. So again, this begs the question, are large pharmaceutical companies maybe um, cutting their nose to spite their face and not giving their MSL teams enough time to effectively prepare, recognizing that this relevance, this key element, being able to deliver relevant relevant information accounts for 25% of our talking about that value pie in terms of authenticity. Uh, it's, it's a large portion of that. So coming back to back to the big picture. We've talked about responsiveness. We've talked about expertise. We've talked about relevance. What's the next big bucket? What's the next important element? It's novelty. So specifically when we think about MSLs engaging key opinion leaders and physicians, one of the key criteria, and we hear this across the work that we do across countries, across therapeutic areas, Only come to me if you have new information, if the information is novel. What I don't want you to do is come back and repeat the same study uh, every quarter or every six months. So this really places a, a large burden on the MSL or on the, 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 the sales rep to really, it, it's, it's intertwined with relevance that we just spoken to. Right. So what is new? What I can what can I talk to you to you about my customer that and share new or novel insights that may be relevant to your clinical practice and may be relevant to your research and scientific endeavors. So think about an MSL, for example, who's got a very strong pipeline and new products are coming down the pipeline, there's new studies being published. Achieving the bar in terms of novelty is actually pretty easy. With new information coming down the pipeline, the MSL actually should not struggle in terms of being able to disseminate new information. Now let's think about an MSL in a different therapeutic area that potentially has not got a strong pipeline, where the products, you know, starting towards uh, move towards maturity. How does an MSL in that instance? provide new and novel information and the bar becomes much higher, much more difficult to achieve. So I think this is where MSL teams, field medical teams really have to be creative in terms of thinking, what information are we going to present? And there's always, I believe, there's always something new to talk about, a different focus area. Um, And quite frankly, even something to revisit. Often revisiting information um, can can provide a lot of value. But the key question is not to talk about the same study every time you, you walk in. It's looking for those nuances. It's looking for those small insights 
and being able to present those um, in a meaningful manner. Thanks to both of you, Mark, for coming back uh, and having a great conversation with us. Um, I have to say that was even more uh, thought-provoking than the first conversation we had about it uh, a couple weeks ago. And I appreciate your work uh, for ClearPoint very much. Uh, I look forward to having you both back on uh, really soon uh, to talk about more fun stuff in our world. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining us. Subscribe to Clear Points on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify so you won't miss our next episode coming soon. Clear Points is a production of Clearpoint Health and the Park Life Podcast Network.